Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town 
but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. We uh, continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we uh, have defined Mark's writing style, maybe unfortunately, as a breathless naked man running through a garden. As you read it, we'll see if it, if it rings true to you. But Mark gives us a lot of information, but doesn't linger on anything in particular. He develops themes. He wants to present Jesus as he really is to us and convince us to follow this Jesus. So last week, we considered the beginning of the gospel. This is how Mark started the book. He wanted to give us a framework, sort of an introduction to, to start understanding Jesus and, and what he came to do. And then today, uh, we are looking, um, kind of starting verse 15, which we covered last week, but that is a springboard for the rest of the chapter. And in verse 15, Jesus begins his public ministry, and this is Mark's summary of Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then what follows is the exposition of Jesus' authority. So there's the proclamation, the kingdom is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel, and then there's an explanation why you should do what Jesus tells us to do. By what authority is he calling us to repent and believe in the gospel? By what authority can he declare that the kingdom of God is at hand? So let's look at our passage and try to sort it out. I'd like to consider it under three headings, very simple. First, let's consider the king. Second, let's consider his kingdom, the nature of this kingdom. And finally, let's respond to the call to be part of that kingdom. Okay. One of the basic things we need to establish is that there is no kingdom without a king. We have to understand the kingdom of God in Scripture as connected to the king, to the God-appointed king, Jesus the Messiah. And so we can't really be involved in the kingdom or be working for the kingdom unless we are connected with the king. Now, in my circles and your circles, maybe in Christian circles, you would often hear language like this is kingdom work. We, we are doing, we're connecting and partnering together. We're doing kingdom work. And sometimes uh, our various views of who Jesus is are downplayed for the sake of working together for the kingdom. And usually kingdom work is reduced to works of mercy, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, fighting for justice, which are all worthy causes. However, these things, helping the poor, healing the sick, are not necessarily kingdom work. They're only kingdom work if we further the rule of the king. In other words, you can do things that look like kingdom things without actually furthering the kingdom. And so I believe actually our relationship with the king and our understanding of who Jesus is should provide the only basis for our doing kingdom work together. So when we partner, we partner not only in the work that we consider to be work of the kingdom, but we partner in our obedience to the king. We partner in our understanding of who Jesus is. We partner in his mission. And so it becomes intensely personal between me and the king to do kingdom work. And anybody who's connected to the king is my brother and is my sister and is a citizen of the same kingdom. 
Now, this may be an obvious thing in the church, but it is very important because the king it defines the kingdom. And so for us to know that we are in the kingdom, we need to know the king. For us to know the kind of kingdom we are, we need to understand what kind of king Jesus is. So what we think about Jesus really matters. In fact, this whole sermon series is really designed for us to come to grips once again with who Jesus is and get a simple picture of Jesus, get an an unobscured image of Jesus the King so we can serve Him better. Now Mark equates the coming of the kingdom of God with the coming of Jesus the Messiah. It's very clear for Mark. Jesus came, so the kingdom was coming. Jesus is saying these things. These are the words of the kingdom. These are the words of God. He's not separating those two. And in fact, the kingdom begins because the king arrives. For Mark, as Jesus exercises his authority as a king, as his royal authority, the kingdom is established. And this authority, according to this chapter, is established by his word, by Jesus' word, and by his touch, by his word and by his touch. So let's look at these specific examples. I'm going to just walk through this, the remainder of this chapter. So verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls his first disciples. This is very exciting because he arrived and now he's recruiting people. He's actually including people into his work and into his kingdom. And there are two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew. Simon becomes Peter, known as Peter later. And then James and John, sons of Zebedee, they're both fishermen. They're different fishing crews here, but they know each other. They're kind of together. And Jesus comes to them, and he simply commands, he commands them to follow him. This is something a king would do. It's not a, a, a job recruiter doesn't do that. It's not a, there's no suggestion here. There's no invitation here. There's a command He comes to him and says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Which, by the way, I think they have no idea what that means. And I don't think they go with Jesus because fishing men sounds like a good idea. I think they go with Jesus because Jesus calls them. And they cannot go against his word. They are are arrested by his word, by what he says. His authority. Notice that Jesus' call supersedes family and business. (laughs) I mean, they they leave their nets, right? Simon and Andrew leave their nets. They leave every... Leaving their nets means leaving their business behind, leaving their work behind. And they're not following Jesus. No idea how they're going to be provided for. They're just following this king. Now, of course, James and John not only leave their work, they leave their father. This is a big deal in this culture. Somebody comes in and just tells you to leave your family and go somewhere to fish men. I mean, but they go. They don't stay with their father. They go because they trust this king, because his word has such authority. And then go to verses 21 through 28. This is where Jesus is teaching in a local synagogue. It's a local religious service. That's not uncommon for somebody who's considered to be a teacher uh, to be invited to teach. And so Jesus is asked to speak, and he speaks, he teaches, but he teaches with such authority 
that everybody in attendance recognizes that this is a new kind of teaching. There's a different kind of teaching. Now, we don't know what he taught. We don't know what he said on, on this particular instance. But we know that the way he taught was different from any other teacher, any other scribes, those learned men who typically would teach in a synagogue. And then there's a demon-possessed man in attendance. And the unclean spirit, this demonic spirit in this man, knows that the arrival of the king, the arrival of the king spells the end of demonic activity. So there's a confrontation. There's a spiritual confrontation. The unclean spirit starts talking about Jesus. Says, Why have you come? Why are you doing this to us? We know who you are. So there's a demonic proclamation that the king is coming. Jesus forbids the demon to speak, to reveal who he is, and casts him out and liberates this man. And people are amazed. They say a new teaching has come, teaching with authority, the kind of authority that even commands the unclean spirits, and the spirits obey him. It's the kind of authority this king has. Now, one commentator says that in each of these two episodes, the calling of the disciples and then the teaching and the healing at the synagogue, the narrative seems to be abbreviated. We don't have as much detail. It seems to be pared down to make one single impression. And the impression is that Jesus has enormous authority. Now, this is where you get kind of the feel for Mark's style of writing. He's not given us as much detail as Luke or Matthew would, but he's given us enough to drive his point home. And the point is that Jesus has enormous authority unlike anybody else. He comes and he does these things that nobody else can do. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's coming by the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no kingdom of God without Jesus, and there's no participation in the kingdom without a relationship with the king. That's the point. Now, Jesus goes from town to town. He preaches the good news of the kingdom. And every time somebody recognizes, kind of, kind of connects the dots and, and realizes the implications of this authority is that this is the Messiah, he forbids them to speak. Demons, humans, Jesus doesn't want anybody else to spread the news that he is the Messiah. Now, the question is why? And if you read enough commentaries, you come to this phrase, the messianic secret. A lot of scholars are wrestling with this idea. Why is Jesus forbidding all these people to spread the right information, seemingly, the right information about him? And I think the answer is, is that Jesus wants to be revealed on his own terms. And eventually, in chapter 8, and we'll get to that, there is a proclamation of who he is. And Jesus affirms that proclamation, and then Jesus becomes known as that kind of Messiah. And that identity is connected with the cross and the resurrection. So the reason Jesus is, is, is telling demons to be quiet and telling humans not, telling the leper later not to tell anybody, because he doesn't want to be presented as a different kind of Messiah. He wants on his own term to present himself as the suffering, the crucified Messiah, the one who came to die for the sins of his people, the one who would rise and give us a new life. 
He wants to define his kingdom himself. And so for several chapters, he's going to tell people to not talk about it. And then there will be a revelation, and the right revelation will, will spread. Now, Jesus' authority is not only expressed through his preaching. He does a lot of preaching here. But it's also expressed through healing, through his interactions with people. In other words, through his touch. Now, I think it's easy to overlook. I mean, I, I've heard sermons preached from these passages that really focus on the preaching and talks about how important the Word of God is. And I have no objections to that, of course. It's clear that Jesus comes to preach. And yet Jesus also does other things. And the main other thing He does is healing and, the, and liberating people from demonic oppression. So He preaches and He casts out demons. He preaches and He heals the sick. So let's consider his touch. Look at verses 30 and 31. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him, Jesus, about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is such a tender scene. Jesus takes this woman by the hand. He touches her, and her fever disappears. And she gets up to serve them, to serve him, to serve other disciples. She gets up liberated from her fever to serve in his kingdom. Many people who are sick or oppressed by demons are brought to Jesus and he heals them. And then verses 40 through 44, we have another example of Jesus' powerful touch. A leper comes to him. Now, leper in those days could mean any number of skin disease, and it could have been very serious physically. A person could be dying. It could be actual, what we would now diagnose as leprosy, which over time destroy your body. You would lose fingers and toes and limbs and nose. It would destroy you. Or it could be any number of other skin diseases. But one thing that always happened is that you were declared unclean and isolated. You were excluded. You couldn't be with your family. You couldn't go to a synagogue. You couldn't go to the temple. And any time that you would approach anybody, people would run away from you. In fact, lepers were supposed to look different. They're supposed to wear different clothing. They're supposed to have bells with them to warn people that they're coming. So these are ostracized people. These are isolated people. They're excluded from the social life and the religious life of the community. This is the kind of person that comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. Jesus does not turn him away. Notice how he approaches him in verse 40. The leper says, if you will, if you are willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. Now notice how hesitant the leper is to approach him. Notice that when he approaches him, he's not questioning his power. He's questioning his desire. He's heard enough about Jesus. He's heard enough about the miracles and the healings and, the, and, and the, the casting out of demons. He knows Jesus can heal him. The question is, will Jesus heal him? Or will Jesus just run away from him like everybody else? He's wondering if Jesus wants to heal him. The leopard sees the king's greatness. 
He's just not sure about the king's goodness. Now, how does Jesus respond? Verse 41, moved with pity. Again, you, you read these gospel passages carefully, and you have this, this window into Jesus' heart. It's moved. There's an emotional response to the leper, and the response is not to run away, but he actually goes towards him. He's moved with pity. You can actually translate it, he was moved with anger. Anger at the sickness, anger at the brokenness, anger at the sin in the world, anger at the destruction and, and dysfunction of the world. And Jesus, moved with pity, stretches out his hand, he touches him. He touches the leper. The leper has not been touched in many months or years, perhaps. But Jesus touches him. And when he touches him, he says, I will be clean. The question was, are you willing to heal me? And Jesus says, I am willing to heal you. And he touches him and he heals him. He makes him clean. And this is not just a physical healing. Of course it is. His skin actually is now better. His body is restored physically. But he's also now restored into the community, into his family, into the worship of the temple. In fact, Jesus tells him, go talk to the priest. Go through all the necessary procedures so that you are now declared clean. So there are no restrictions on your life anymore. So you can be with your family. So you can go to the temple. So you can bring a sacrifice. So you can worship. Jesus touches him and heals him. Mark's point is that Jesus brings the kingdom of God by his word and by his touch. He shows both his greatness and his goodness. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on the nature of this kingdom. So here's the king. He brings the kingdom. What kind of kingdom is it? Misunderstanding the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom that we are now in currently can lead easily to frustration and spiritual disillusionment. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what does that mean? It's a fair question, right? It could mean the kingdom of God is near, it's coming, or it could mean the kingdom of God is here, it's already come. Depending on how you interpret that, right, will determine what you expect God to do in your life. There are people who are saying the kingdom is here. Everything has already been accomplished. So all God's promises are fulfilled. Anything that we claim will be done. He will respond and answer every prayer. He will give me everything I need. That's the kingdom is here mindset. Some would call it overrealized eschatology. We think everything has already happened. And then there are people who are saying the kingdom is near. It's not here yet. So we really can't expect God to rule now. We can't expect him to answer prayer now. We can't expect him to heal now. It's still in the future. It's coming. Now, it will come, but it's coming. It's not here yet. The tricky thing is that in the text, we don't know what that means. And I would say that's intentional ambiguity. 
I think intentionally Mark wants us to think, and Jesus wants us to think, that the kingdom is in some ways here, and yet it is in some ways still coming. Now, I'm sorry, this is a paradox. It's intention. I get that's not a clean answer you might expect, but I think this is true. And actually, throughout Scripture, you see that same tension. And we are called to live in that tension. The kingdom that's already here, but it is yet coming. The kingdom of God that already came at the Jesus' first coming in His birth, His life, His teaching, His healings, His miracles, of course, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension. That's, that's the kingdom of God. It's already here. And we're part of it. And yet, when He returns... It's sort of like it's a different kind of kingdom that comes, right? Or at least it's a kingdom to the fuller degree. Something will be different when he comes in glory. Now, I'm sure you've heard the already not yet mindset, right? You've heard me, probably me say it and Josh say it and everybody else. I mean, we all say it because this is a, a good way to define this. The kingdom is already here, but it is not yet here. Some aspects of the kingdom are here, and yet some aspects are not already here. To some degree, the kingdom is broken in, but to some degree, it's still coming. It's not to the full degree yet. Now, that's a good way to think about it. That is what I'm talking about. But I'm going to give you another framework. I'm going to give you another way to think about the same reality. The kingdom of God now is the kingdom of grace. The kingdom of God that is yet to come is the kingdom of glory. We now live under God's rule in the kingdom of grace. We will live under God's rule in the kingdom of glory when Jesus returns. Now, I'm going to dwell here for a little bit because I want us to see that distinction because I am convinced that if we get this distinction, if we understand the point of tension that actually helps us live with God and expect the right things and deal with certain disappointments in the right way. Learning this distinction will help us accept why certain things happen now and why other certain things we have to wait for when Jesus returns. So for example, let's, let me ask the question that I'm sure on most of your minds. And it should be, when you read a passage like this, we should be asking, if Jesus healed the leper, why doesn't he heal me? Right? Or does Jesus heal anybody that goes to him today and asks him to heal him? Now, I'm focusing on the physical healing, but of course we can expand it to any number of issues. We see things Jesus does in the Bible, and then we go to him and ask for the same thing, and he doesn't do it. Or we talk to other people, and we see that he does certain things for other people at certain times. We go to him with exactly the same request, it seems, and he doesn't do it the same way. Some of us have experienced miraculous healings. And yet, some of us have been praying for decades for relief of pain or for someone's healing from a debilitating chronic disease and God is not healed. How do you explain that? And how do you explain that in a way that you don't lose your faith, you don't walk away from Jesus in disillusionment, you don't stop praying for these things? 
How do you deal with that? How do you handle your child's condition when you pray for them and God does not heal them? And even, even more so when you pray for someone and they die and they're not healed. How do you deal with that? I think the way to deal with that is to understand the distinction between the kingdom of glory and the kingdom of grace. We are in the kingdom of grace, but we will be in the kingdom of glory. So let me give you a biblical analogy, and then I'll give you a war analogy from Ukraine, because I haven't done that in a couple of weeks, okay? <laughs> so here's a biblical analogy. Israel was promised their own land. To possess that land, they had to leave Egypt. You remember the plagues, they leave Egypt. They had to spend time in the wilderness, 40 years. There's a whole generation that dies in the wilderness. And then they had to conquer the land. And it took a while, and there were a lot of obstacles when they did that. Now, when the conquest was happening, what kind of rule was in place? What kind of kingdom? They were a kingdom, they were a nation. But what kind of kingdom, what kind of rule, what kind of authority existed when they were conquering the land. When not everything was the way it was supposed to be, right? Or the way God promised it to be. Lots of things were missing. Lots of things were sort of in progress. Lots of things they were wishing for, but it wasn't there yet. So for example, Jerusalem was not the royal city yet. In fact, it wasn't until David, this is much much later after the conquest, it wasn't until David that they could gain control over Jerusalem, that whole territory, and the king could actually be there and rule from Jerusalem. But God promised that that was going to happen, right? There was no temple until Solomon. There was a tabernacle that moved around. It was in lots of places. Sometimes it was neglected for, for years. So you see how certain things that were supposed to be there were not there. And certain things were developing, but were not fully expressed. Now, was, were they God's kingdom? Yes. Were they ruled by God? Yes. But it was a kingdom of grace. It was not a kingdom of glory. Meaning that there's a lot of tension still. There's a lot of things that are developing. There's a lot of things that are changing, and they're not fully realized. And really, it's not until the later days of David and the early days of Solomon that we begin to see a glimpse of the kingdom of glory, where seemingly now all the enemies are defeated, where there is peace and prosperity in the kingdom. But that didn't happen until later. And it came through the conquest. And the time of conquest was a kingdom of grace. Was God involved? Absolutely. Was God exercising his authority? Yes, but it was not the kingdom of glory where nobody opposed his authority, where his word accomplished absolutely everything immediately, every time. We now live in Christ's kingdom of grace, and we will live in his kingdom of glory when he returns. Now, here's an important question. Why did Jesus not establish the kingdom of glory right away? Why give us this intermediate kingdom of grace, why not just come and establish the kingdom of glory right away? The answer to that question is, it is because he is not just a great king, he is also a good king. He's not just a great king, but he is also a good king. Let me explain. During the time of the conquest, 
God was conquering land, right? There was progression. New territory was being gained as God's people were moving forward. But God was also conquering his people. You see, the conquest is not just the land. It's not just fighting with the peoples in the land. It's also fighting with his people. It's also subduing his people's hearts. It's also shaping them into a nation that could live in a land that God was giving them. To establish his kingdom, God must defeat all his enemies, but he must also form his people into a godly nation, a nation that doesn't oppose him, a nation that is not at odds with him. Now, when we ask, okay, this may get a little personal for us, okay, so bear with me. When we ask, God, why don't you just heal everyone immediately? And of course, we don't mean everyone. We mean very specific people we're praying for. Why don't, just, why don't you just do it right away when we ask that? Ask yourself, but do we actually mean, are we actually asking for God to defeat all his enemies immediately? That's a dangerous prayer. Because illness is just one of the barriers to his rule. Do you know what other barriers are? That's just some of them. Pride, disobedience, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, idolatry, injustice. So when we say, God, establish your kingdom of glory now by healing me, by healing my child now, what we're saying is, defeat all your enemies immediately. Why do you think you're going to be in the kingdom of glory? Why do you think anybody survives God's rule? Why do you think if God says, okay, I will show myself great, why do you think anybody can approach him? That is why there's a kingdom of glory that precedes, or kingdom of grace that precedes his kingdom of glory. Before you can deal with his greatness, you have to come to grips with his goodness. And so what God is doing, much like during the time of the conquest, he's leading us into the land. All his promises will come true. But he is shaping us, he's working with us, he's healing us, he's changing us so we can then belong in the kingdom of glory. You know those passages in Scripture that talk about these sinners, and there's a list of sinners usually, won't inherit the kingdom of God, right? There's going to be no sin in the kingdom of glory. There's going to be no disobedience. There's going to be no idolatry. There's going to be no injustice in the kingdom of glory. How do we get there? We get there through the kingdom of grace, where we are forgiven, where we are changed, where we are shaped into a different kind of people the kind of people that will actually belong in the kingdom of glory. No sinner can be part of the kingdom of glory, but lots of sinners are brought in in the kingdom of grace and make fit for the kingdom that is to come. To accept his greatness, to survive his greatness, we must be changed by his goodness. Let me give you another analogy really quickly. So there's the Ukrainian counteroffensive and different parts 
of the territory that used to be Ukrainian and has been occupied by the Russian army is now being liberated. Now, what happens when the Ukrainian army comes in and retakes some of the territory that belong? Do you think infrastructure is immediately restored? Do you think the roads are built immediately? Do you think uh, social security checks are being mailed immediately? Do you think immediately it's clear who's, who is the collaborator, who's not a collaborator? Do you think they find all the children immediately that left that area, were, were taken out of that area by the Russians? None of that happens immediately. So on the, one hand, on the one hand, we can say the Ukrainian rule is restored. Immediately, when the troops roll in, the Ukrainian rule is restored immediately. So we can say, yeah, that is the kingdom. That's already under the authority of the Ukrainian state. However, that full kingdom of glory is not there. It is yet to come. There's lots of work to be done, and part of that work is with the people who are there. Part of that is, is the work of nation building. Part of that is the work of shaping the kind of people that can live in the free Ukraine in the end. Now, here's a very cool thing that happens. It's not unique to Ukraine, but it is particularly pronounced in this war with Russia. They say that the largest supplier of weapons to the Ukrainian military is the Russian Federation. Let me say this again. The largest supplier of weapons to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian military, is the Russian Federation. What I mean is this: all this stuff they leave behind when they surrender, when they run, when they panic. Ukraine is actually gaining more weapons that they're using against the Russians from the Russians. Now, lots is coming from the West, too. But a lot of the weapons they're using are the weapons they've recaptured in this offensive. Now, this is exactly how God works. God, in his kingdom of grace, is able to recapture the weapons of the enemy and use them to liberate you. Amen. When the Lord chooses not to heal you, which he does frequently, when he chooses not to heal you, He's taking the weapon of the enemy, and he's saying, I will use it to bring a greater liberation to you. Now, this is, this is the goodness of God. It's not just his greatness. Of course, he can heal it. Of course, he can destroy all the enemies immediately. But what he does is he's very carefully expanding his kingdom of grace so then he can establish the kingdom of glory with you in it. Remember when Paul was praying. He had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but it's some kind of physical ailment, most likely. He's praying three times. He goes to the Lord, and he prays that the Lord will take it away. Now, this is a prayer. A Christian is praying for healing. Paul has seen many healings. He's seen the Lord heal. He himself was used by God to heal others, right? Remember, people were buying his handkerchiefs, remember? and aprons, just to touch, you know, something from Peter or Paul or one of the apostles, and all of a sudden people would get healed. Now, Paul is coming out of that kind of culture. He knows how powerful God is. And yet he prays to God, and three times the Lord says no. And what is the Lord's final answer to that? What does the Lord promise to him? Do you remember? My grace, my grace is sufficient for you. This is the kingdom of grace. This is what God is doing. He's leading you into those situations to reveal His goodness to you so that you can belong in the kingdom of glory.
Now, we'll finish on the call of Jesus to enter this kingdom, to be part of this kingdom, to live in this kingdom of grace, even as you are waiting for the kingdom of glory to come. The way you become a subject of this king is by responding to his word and by feeling his touch. You need to see both his greatness and his goodness. It's not enough just to see his greatness. The demon in the story, the demon that is cast out, right? The demon sees the greatness of the Messiah, but the demon does not believe in the goodness of the Messiah. There are plenty of people, some are in church this morning, who believe that Jesus exists. They believe Jesus is the king. They believe Jesus is very powerful. They believe Jesus is the creator. They believe all this. They don't question his greatness, but they don't know anything about his goodness. They may have heard his word, but they have never felt his touch. They've never been in a situation where they learned that this Jesus, this Messiah, whether he heals them or not, whether he answers their prayer or not, he does it out of his goodness. Part of our conversion experience, part of our real connection with God has to do with us discovering that He is not only able to heal us, He's not only able to save us, He's not only able to bless us, but He is willing to bless us, that He is willing to save us, that He is willing to heal us. And until you see that, I don't think we truly belong in the kingdom of grace, and thus we must question whether we will end up in the kingdom of His glory. So let me talk just a little bit in closing about the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus is that statement and the experience that He is willing to save you, that He desires to save you. Now, how do we know that that's true? Well, there's one story here. The leper comes, and he asks, and Jesus touches him, moved with pity, yes, But the whole life of Jesus, the whole life of the whole work, everything Jesus has done tells us that he is willing to save us. He came to save us. Why did Jesus come if not to save us? Why did God become human? Why did Jesus live this life, the life of suffering and affliction and dysfunction and dealing with all of us? Why? Because he's willing to save us. Not only does he is he able to save, but he's willing to save us. And he's willing to use all sorts of things to liberate us, all sorts of weapons recaptured from the enemy, all sorts of means. Everything is under his sway. He can, do, he can use anything to liberate you because he's willing, because he wants to. And there's goodness in his answers to our prayers. There's goodness in his presence with us. There's goodness in allowing suffering in our lives so he can liberate us fully. There's a story told about a leper, an actual leper, who was cared for by by a missionary surgeon somewhere in, in, in South Asia, I think. And the surgeon took a picture of this leper. And the person who saw that picture described it as this is a smile to die for. A person who actually, this leper, lost two of his limbs to leprosy. This is a real leprosy diagnosis. He lost two limbs, and yet he had a smile that was incredibly beautiful. 
And when asked, you know, how do you explain this, this tension here? Your body is failing, your body is falling apart, but you seem to be happy. And the leper says, I am glad that I had leprosy. Because had it not been for leprosy, I would never meet Jesus. Now, I'm not giving you this as an inspirational story. I'm telling you this is how God works. God will do something in your life so a greater liberation can happen. He will use a weapon. He will use a means. Yes, even things like leprosy. Yes, even things like death to liberate you, to bring you into his kingdom of grace so then he can take you into his kingdom of glory. Jesus, this is the goodness of Jesus, when he touches a sinner, he does not get contaminated by sin, right? But the sinner is contaminated by his goodness. Now, if you read, and we're familiar with these stories, but you read these passages from the Gospels and you see Jesus interacting with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and especially lepers. And that seems normal to us because we know Jesus. But back in the day when it was happening, it was extremely unusual, especially interacting with lepers. And Jesus, what does he do? He touches him. Jesus doesn't get leprosy, right? But the leper gets the cleansing that Jesus has. The leper becomes pure as Jesus. Now, do you know why Jesus can do that and nobody else could? Because later, this Messiah, and this is how Jesus wants to define his Messiahship, later, this Messiah went on the cross and he became filthy with our sin so he can clean us. He took our guilt so he can forgive us. He took our death so he can give us life. So when he extends his hand to a sinner, this is the hand that was pierced for your sins. And the reason he can cleanse you is because he himself was unclean for you. Not because of anything he did, but because he took your place. And on the cross he was isolated, he was ostracized even from God so that he could bring you in the kingdom, so he can bring you into the family of God, so he can extend grace to you. Now, everyone will bow before the king in his kingdom of glory. Part of the nature of the kingdom of glory is nobody will be able to oppose his word. Everybody will bow before his authority. Scripture tells us that every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess. Believers, unbelievers, sinners, righteous, nobody will be able to resist his power, his greatness in the kingdom of his glory. Everyone will acknowledge that he is great. The question and the challenge for us today is, will you bow before him now in the kingdom of his grace, not only because he is great, but because he is good. Don't bow before Jesus only because he has the power to heal. That's manipulation. That's just using him. Bow before him because he has the desire to heal. Not only because he is great, but because he is good. The kingdom is at hand because the pierced hand of the king has touched you. This is how you get into the kingdom of grace. And this is how you will persevere and will be included in the kingdom 
of his glory. So this is the challenge of Jesus. Follow him. Follow Jesus. Drop your nets and follow Jesus.